How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Hello, and welcome to another EMS World podcast. My name is Jacob Sorensen, Editorial Assistant interning with EMS World. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we'll be discussing a topic that is low frequency but incredibly high risk, and that is the role of EMS in hazmat disasters. This is a companion podcast to an article that appeared in our July 2020 issue titled, A Blast in the Backyard, The Role of EMS in Hazmat Disasters. I encourage you to check out that article for context on what we'll be discussing today. The article took a look at the response to a refinery fire in South Philadelphia on June of 2019, which had released nearly 3,500 pounds of hydrofluoric acid into the air and led to the neutralization of 340,000 pounds of hydrofluoric acid still on the site. We are happy to have joining us today Fire Commissioner and Emergency Management Director for the City of Philadelphia, Adam Teal. Commissioner Teal, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Again, this article we're discussing today outlines the multi-agency response to a fire at the Philadelphia Energy Solutions Refinery Complex in South Philly. Commissioner Teal was a part of the Unified Command alongside local, state, and federal agencies working together to neutralize the hydrofluoric acid. Commissioner Teal, I was hoping you could start us off today by telling us a little bit about yourself. Where did you start your career, and how has the experience helped with managing that incident? Thanks, Jacob. Well, that's... uh... Kind of a long story, so I'll, I'll hit the highlights that are relevant to the, the incident we're talking about. I'm fairly fortunate over the course of my career now, 28 years, I've had the opportunity. I actually started as an EMS provider, as a volunteer EMT, became a firefighter, then became an advanced life support provider, paramedic, and also a hazmat technician. For this incident, that was that background was very valuable because I was able to, you know, kind of speak the language of all of those different domains. Uh, and I've also had the benefit of, you know, working uh, around the nation in five states now in a variety of different roles and also at the state and federal level, which was pretty critical for this event because we had so many different federal, state, and local partners, other local agencies like our public health department state agencies, including our emergency management agency, Department of Environmental Protection, and a host of federal agencies, EPA, as you might imagine, Department of Labor, ATF, they're doing an investigation alongside our our fire marshals and our our police department. So really, on the one hand, there are the, the technical skills and the technical knowledge and background that I've developed over my career in hazmat, firefighting, and of course, EMS. That was very valuable for this event. Frankly, a lot of that was done by by other folks, the the members of our department, the women and men who responded on that three alarm fire and the immediate aftermath. A lot of my work was after the fire was out. This incident went on for uh, three months and three days until we put it under control. And a lot of what we did during that time was really trying to understand the different aspects of a refinery that had been significantly damaged and then planning for the p- 
potential secondary and tertiary impacts of that event, other releases. I mean, this was still a working refinery even after the explosion uh, in other areas of the facility. Uh, a lot of products stored on site. So for me, it wasn't just the technical knowledge and background that was important for this event. It was that experience working at different levels of government with a host of different stakeholders, including the private sector. We had a great working relationship with Philadelphia Energy Solutions or PES, the owner of the refinery before that event, you know, went to monthly meetings with them. So we were on a first name basis with a lot of their principals. And also over time had worked with a number of the federal partners who were there. And of course our local, our local partners, police department and public health, we work with all the time. So on an event like this, before the event, during the event, and after the event, the technical knowledge, skills, and background is vital and extremely helpful. A lot of the skills that are important, though, and are extremely valuable and essential are building relationships, facilitating, hopefully having relationships already, getting a bunch of people are trying to get to an answer when there are a lot of unknowns with a lot of folks who have different equities and interests and in whatever's going on. You know, our first meeting, uh, we met with the outside counsel who was brought in for the refinery. And, you know, that was an interesting meeting. We had probably 30 or 40 people around the room and had to quickly get into the details of uh, what the incident command system was, who was the incident commander, me uh, and my designees. So really, that was another important piece of this was understanding the incident command system, having a background in managing major events, you know, hurricanes, other types of things, being part of that at different levels and in different states and in different localities. So uh, this was uh, thankfully one that uh, I guess I was as prepared as I ever could have been for this event. But the most important thing to say is it's, you know, it's not about me. It really is about the men and women of the Philadelphia Fire Department, almost 3,000 strong. Uh, all of our EMTs, medics, dispatchers, firefighters, chief officers, fire marshals, hazmat technicians, everybody who played a role in that response over that three months and three days. It really doesn't matter what I know. And of course, my biggest job and, and most important role uh, as the commissioner of the Philadelphia Fire Department and also the emergency management director for the city is doing everything I can to make sure that the folks who are going to be on the scene 24-7, 365 have the right knowledge, skills and abilities and background to be able to manage a very low frequency but high risk event. So uh, I'm fortunate that I feel like I was prepared over the course of my career and uh at the same time, this was definitely something I never thought I would have to deal with. So as mentioned, hazmat incidents continue to be an incredibly low-frequency event, uh, luckily enough for most of our first responders nationwide. Um, as discussed in the article, mutual aid agreements were already in place for an event such as the refinery fire. PFD had a good relationship with the refinery's fire brigade as well, as well as familiarity with the site itself. A huge part about Knowing your area as a fireman or as an EMS provider is understanding what kinds of calls you can be getting, especially the ones that don't happen as often, and pre-planning is a huge part of that. In your opinion, where does EMS come into pre-planning a site such as the refinery, which could produce these low-frequency high-risk calls requiring medical interventions that aren't 
seen or practiced on a normal basis? Uh, it's a great question, Jacob. And, and I'm going to start by sort of disagreeing with your initial premise that hazmat incidents are low frequency. In fact, I would suggest to you that while we don't always recognize them for what they are, hazardous materials incidents are actually very common. And I think we frequently, uh, and again, this is everywhere that I've worked, we sort of uh, underplay the response to those incidents. If you spill you know, any type of chemical outside of a laboratory or it leaves containment, uh, you really don't necessarily know, you know what's gonna happen with that product. So I, I think it's important as a first step that we all think back to that hazmat awareness or hazmat operations training and keep that in the front of our minds when you're thinking about recognition and identification. You know, those are the first couple things and it's vital that all the EMS providers, all firefighters, law enforcement officers, dispatchers in particular, I mean, we leave our dispatchers out of this uh, at our peril, that they're able to recognize a hazardous materials incident for what it is and make sure, to your point, uh, because major incidents are relatively rare, uh, make sure that we get the, the resources that also tend to be scarce that are appropriate for a hazardous materials response moving to the scene as quickly as possible. You know, just like fires, a lot of hazmat incidents start off small. And if they're not recognized, identified, and then you start properly managing them, uh, they can get big in a hurry. And unfortunately they have, and we've seen this over the years, over the course of my career, you know, they can claim those true first responders lives early on. So I think it's vital that we recognize them for what they are and that we respond appropriately. Now to your point, Refineries are fairly rare uh, in the United States. Uh, we happen to have, when PES was open, the largest refinery on the East Coast dating back uh, really to the late 1800s or yeah, mid to late 1800s. So this place had been operate, in operation for a long time. It grew and grew and grew. Uh, we had a tragic history at this facility where uh, a number of firefighters were killed in the, in the 1970s in a storage tank fire. And so th this is a place that's you know, on our minds and part of our planning has been part of our planning for, for years. And even though refineries might be rare, facilities that use chemicals in bulk quantities exist all around the nation. And in almost every community in the nation, there is a distributor of liquefied petroleum gas or a fertilizer distributor. Uh, again, tragic incident in, in West Texas years ago and on and on and on. So there are hazardous materials everywhere. And what we had here in Philadelphia at the refinery was an extreme case. However, uh, you know, frankly, when you, when you look at chemistry and you think about it and you think about the chemicals that are around us in everyday life and certainly in use in industry, uh, almost all first responders are at risk of experiencing a hazardous materials incident. We also have hazmats traveling along rail corridors in greater and greater quantities, different types of hazmats, highways. And one of the places that is in almost every community are these self-storage facilities where while folks aren't supposed to store 
hazardous materials or dangerous chemicals in those storage units, we all know that they do. And it's almost impossible to regulate. And remember as well, it doesn't take large quantities or bulk quantities of hazardous materials to really put our responders and our potential patients at risk. So a little bit goes a long way with hazmat, which is why in every jurisdiction, you know, if it's a, you know, if you work for a private or a not-for-profit EMS agency, even if you don't have the regulatory authority for a facility or, you know, you're, you're tra just traveling up and down the highways or along the rail lines, it's really important to keep that basic hazmat top of mind and also to do planning around the things that you do know and the facilities that are in your area of operations or highways, rail corridors, et cetera. We have all of that, including international airport, a seaport. For us, hazmat is something that is really, uh, it's a daily event, uh, hazmat incidents of different kinds, still you know, much uh, less frequent than the 800 to 1,000 EMS incidents that our medics and EMTs and firefighter EMTs respond to every 24 hours or the 150 plus. Lately, it's been a lot more uh, fire incidents that our firefighters respond to every day. It is the type of thing that you can plan for. And we had done a lot of planning for this refinery in advance around a lot of scenarios. The challenge is, as I'm fond of saying, and it's it's not my it's not my quote. I think it was uh, a Dwight D. Eisenhower who who said, "Plans are nothing. Planning is everything." And very quickly. The plans that we had for this refinery and this incident just turned out to not be suited to the type of incident that we had, but the planning process and the planning partners and our ability to do planning and rapidly change uh, and accommodate new information, that was really critical and that's how we got through this event. So on the one hand, you know, making plans makes perfect sense and is important. More important in my experience is the planning process that is used to create those plans and ensuring that you're able to adapt and adjust on the fly. And, you know, never has that been more true than over our, you know, the past year since this refinery explosion, we put that under control and we've said the same thing before all these events, whether it was COVID or a severe weather event we had recently, a derecho, or uh, some of the, the civil unrest that unfortunately was, um, you know, marred the peaceful protest activity that we still have here in Philadelphia. Uh, it's really critical that you develop that planning capability because there's always going to be something that you didn't plan for. There's always going to be a scenario that you didn't expect. And uh, for us, the, the things that were really important here was the ability to do new planning on the fly and bring people together and make things happen in an environment where, you know, a refinery is, is complicated all the time. A lot of chemical engineers, people with doctorates and, and chemies wandering around, uh, and they know exactly how everything works right up until the point that it explodes or you have what happened here. Uh, a blevy, a boiling liquid expanding vapor explosion that essentially scrambled all the piping, scrambled the refinery, took down their safety systems, and all bets were off. So it was uh, 
plans are, I guess I'll end on this question with uh, plans are nothing, or I'll say I'll modify it a little bit. Plans are great, but planning is everything. And to me, another part of your question, where does EMS come into pre-planning? I don't see a distinction. And part of that is because I think my background has always been EMS, firefighting, and hazmat. EMS has to be involved in pre-planning for hazardous materials incidents in every jurisdiction from the start. And for us at this refinery, that was particularly important because of the nature of the, you know, one of the products that was used in the process, hydrogen fluoride. The majority of personnel that responded to the fire from both the fire and EMS side were only trained to the hazmat level, while hazardous materials task force were trained to the technician level. Do you think there's a place for hazmat technician level trained EMS providers who may be able to bridge the gap between a hazmat technician and an EMS provider? Absolutely. I think it's vital to have EMS providers who have the the knowledge and the, the background that comes from that hazmat technician, the classes and the courses and the certification. Like any certification though, same, you know, every every EMS provider knows this, it's vital to stay current. Just you know, learning something 10 years ago and, and even just taking refreshers, hazmat is a constantly evolving topic area. There are new compounds, new chemical compounds being developed every minute, new transportation modes being deployed every minute. And new facilities opening almost every minute or new combinations of, of chemicals being brought together. So, you know, it's important to be trained and get certified. It's really important, I think, to make sure that you have folks who are true specialists as well, have access to subject matter experts. Nobody can know everything. You know, one of the reasons I chose fire and EMS and then hazmat as a career is the fact that you can never know it all there is always something new to learn. And that's true for everything in EMS. We know that. Things I was trained to do more than 25 years ago as an EMS provider are things that we would never dream of doing now to a patient. And other treatments that we were told to never do, uh, like tourniquets back then, now we're all carrying around tourniquets. So things change, it's important to stay current uh, it's critical that we have EMS providers who have that hazmat background. We've actually, and this was planned before the refinery fire, it's now done, but we had already, we had planned a special operations school, uh, certification school for members of our fire department. And we included for the first time ever a number of single role EMS providers in that opportunity. So they received training as hazmat technicians and also as technical rescue technicians, because we know that if for no other reason than protecting our own members and keeping them safe in the various hot, in the hot zone or in the collapse zone, or if you're doing a trench rescue, uh, we needed to have EMS providers who were, you know, trained. And again, our single role EMS providers, while we have firefighter EMTs and we have a lot of folks who are you know, quote unquote, uh, firefighters first, who are nurses and PAs and paramedics. For us, our single role EMS providers are our specialists. 
uh, and emergency medical services. And we wanted to make sure that we have uh, a cadre of folks who have all the different uh, skill sets that we need right out front uh, in any event. And I will tell you, when I was at a different point in my career, when I was a, uh, a firefighter, a company officer, a paramedic, and a hazmat technician, uh, I took a number of courses at the National Fire Academy that are specific to EMS and hazmat incidents. And I, I would commend those courses to folks. The, uh, the hazmat chemistry course that comes out of the National Fire Academy uh, and is taught in almost every state every now and then. The uh, advanced life support response to hazardous materials incidents, uh, which I took uh, in Emmitsburg at the National Fire Academy as a paramedic and a hazmat technician. Fantastic course, a lot of important knowledge there. And uh, also hazmat operating site practices, which is another course they have there. So, you know, you just have to keep learning, have to keep refreshing your skills. Uh, the bottom line, I think, to me is that, you know, the incident really, the incident doesn't know or care who's on that scene and, and what they're bringing to the event. So it's important for us that we cover all the bases and we make sure that we have all the right uh, knowledge, skills, and abilities there on the incident. On scene of this hazmat incident, how are EMS providers implemented into a rescue response group in case a responder gets exposed inside the hot zone? You know, my, my sense, and again, I, other people have different ideas, and that's certainly uh, you know understandable and valuable. From my experience, I actually uh, would prefer that EMS care, you know, actual patient care, treatment modalities are performed in the cold zone. So I, I have a hard time uh, envisioning a scenario where the right answer is actually doing patient care, certainly at the ALS level, in a hazmat hot zone or, or any other hot zone, and, and that's a topic for, you know, for a different day, particularly in hazmat, if you're wearing a fully encapsulated suit, you really can't do patient care on somebody who's wearing a, a level A suit as soon as you break the integrity of that suit to perform any kind of treatment as simple as taking a blood pressure. Uh, you've created another problem. You've contaminated that person. They then require decontamination, uh, both external and internal, and on and on and on. So I think the, the best answer for integrating EMS providers on a hazmat incident to provide care for other responders is to have them be ready, set up, uh, ready to go, ready to deliver uh, ALS interventions, particularly other, you know, potentially other therapies, which is why it, it's important to have that hazmat knowledge or have access to somebody that does. For instance, with us on this particular event, hydrogen fluoride was a threat. And for that, there are a number of different antidotes, uh, namely calcium gluconate in both uh, liquid form for uh, IV administration and also uh, as a, a topical in a different form as a topical treatment if exposed. So we needed to make, you know, if you're going to an incident, it's important as an EMS provider, even if you're in the cold zone waiting, that you're ready to go, you've done the research or you've connected to the research or the science folks on the hazmat team, whoever's responding to that, or called back to whoever the manufacturer is to get the safety data sheets. Uh, don't forget that 
pocket guide that everybody, the, the yellow book, a new edition is getting ready to come out. Uh, that is not everything, but it's a great start. And that's supposed to be in every first response vehicle. So I think the short answer to your question is do the research, be ready to go. And if a responder goes down in a hazmat incident, if they're in a level A or level B suit, get them out of there, get them deconned as fast as possible, get them into the cold zone and, and start doing the treatment on that completely decontaminated patient as quickly as you can. So you really do have to save time at all those steps and, uh, and be ready for the worst case scenario because of course, you know, our highest duty, our highest obligation is to protect ourselves and protect each other uh, because without doing those two things right, uh, we can't help other folks. And, and that's kind of what we're, uh, what we're here for. So almost a year now since the incident itself, uh, looking back at the incident and everything that happened, in your opinion, uh, what were the biggest lessons learned from the response to the refinery fire? I think a lot of the lessons were sort of lessons that were reinforced. And uh, candidly, and I'm not sure this, I'm not sure this came out in the, in the article, but there was a time maybe six to 12 months before that refinery fire and explosion that we were talking about whether or not we were going to spend the money, you know, our limited budget to refresh our stocks of calcium gluconate, which were expiring. So we had large stocks. We had a large cache of calcium gluconate ready for an event. And we had had this for years and maintained it for years uh, for a scenario that, you know, if you had asked me on, you know, a, a day before this refinery fire and explosion, uh, I would have said, and, and really everybody there would have said was, you know, a 1% event or even less than that. And fortunately, we did refresh those stocks. We still needed more. Uh, thankfully, and this is the biggest lesson learned, which really isn't ours, this event would have been an, an absolute disaster and the death toll really could have been catastrophic. We're fortunate nobody lost their life in this event. Uh, a couple of injuries amongst uh, refinery personnel. Had it not been for a well-trained, very alert and aware refinery operator who was sitting at a control panel in the middle of her, I don't know, eight, 10 or 12 hour shift early in the morning, had it not been for her quickly recognizing what was happening and moving to do what needed to be done in their system to essentially, you know, hit the button to move this hydrogen fluoride that was stored in the refinery above the vessel that exploded to move that to a different vessel, we'd be having a very different conversation right now. And uh, we likely would have had, if not the worst case scenario, uh, we certainly would have had uh, deaths from this event had that happened. So that lesson reinforced is you just never know. What we do as EMS providers is 24-7, 365, just like that refinery operator. And it is a matter of life and death. Had she not done what she did, had she been taking a cat nap, had she not been dialed in, wide awake and ready to do what she needed to do, uh, this would have been a very different scenario. And that was literally a matter of 
minutes, a few minutes. Uh, so you just never know when you're going to need to be called into action. Uh, so again, being ready and being prepared, being flexible. You know, we are the folks that other people call when they don't know what to do. Uh, so for us, having that ability to do planning on the fly, always having, you know, something I learned early on, uh, really as a basic EMT, always have a plan A, always have a plan B, always have a plan C, and probably be thinking about plan D. So I, I think that's vital, whether you're, again, just, you know, quote unquote, just uh, riding an ambulance and you think you're going to a quote unquote routine event next. I mean, you just never know what's around the corner. So being ready, staying current, having those relationships in advance, practicing, you know, a famous Philadelphian who I like to quote a lot said uh, it was about pra it's about practice, uh, Allen Iverson of the 76ers. And he's absolutely right. It's about practice and not just practicing the technical skills, but practicing the positive relationships, positive engagement, planning, and all the other things that go into a safe and successful uh, planning response and recovery activity. We thank Commissioner Teal again for joining us today. It's going to do it for this podcast. We will see you on our next one. Keep an eye on our webpage, emsworld.com slash podcast. And again, I encourage you to go read the article on emsworld.com. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you again so much, Commissioner Teal. Thank you, Jacob. Everyone be safe. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.